How would you describe, I guess, the tone of the legislature? It's awful, of course. It's, it's completely dysfunctional. It's weird, because I spent a lot of time thinking about this, about why is the tone of the legislature so awful? Because you, if you haven't been there, if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't been on the floor, it, it's shocking. It's shocking, the behavior in there. Shocking. I mean, I still can't believe it. I was in there for 12 years, and I still can't believe. But it's one of the reasons I had to get out of politics is because... It just eats away at your soul. Just being part of that is corrosive. You, it, that's probably the best word. It's corrosive. It, it, it's like acid eating away at your soul, being in that place where people are acting so stupidly and so meanly and aggressively towards each other. You're listening to On the Record Off Script, and I'm your host, Mark Coffin. For the rest of the summer, we're taking a break from the standard episode of the podcast that follows the career path of a Nova Scotia MLA. And until September, we'll continue sharing some of the long-form interviews we held with former MLAs in Nova Scotia. This week, we share our conversation with Graham Steele. Graham was the former finance minister for Daryl Dexter's NDP government, and before that had served as a key critic for the party while they were in opposition. He worked as a researcher for the NDP caucus before he became an MLA, and had trained and worked as a lawyer before that. You may know Graham from his work with the CBC as a political analyst, or perhaps from his book, What I Learned About Politics, where he codifies the rules of the game of being an elected official. So we do speak with him about some of those things, but we also talk about some of his personal path towards politics, including how he made the jump from being a liberal member and supporter to being a member of the NDP. We talk about his take on why it is so challenging for any government to truly be different, and specifically what he refers to in his book as the iron grip of the status quo. Both myself and Louise Cockrum, lead researcher for the Offscript Project, visited Graham for this interview at his home in Halifax in June of 2015. Here is our conversation. Before politics, I was a lawyer. Uh, The reason I came to Nova Scotia was to go to Dalhousie Law School. I was born and raised in Winnipeg. And after five years of university, I thought I needed to do something that actually led to a career. So I I wanted to go to a law school, and I ended up choosing Dalhousie. So I arrived in Nova Scotia in 1986, graduated from Dal Law School in 1989, and practiced law full-time till 1997. Then I went back to Dalhousie Law School to do a master's degree, which I didn't finish. And then in 1998, the NDP had their big increase in seats from 4 to 19, 1998 election, and they needed a lot of staff quickly. So I wasn't employed at the time. I was just trying to finish up my master's. They needed people to work, and that was essentially the end of my legal career at that point. Then I went into politics and worked at that full-time until... um, the 2013 election. So how did you transition from working for the NDP to becoming a candidate? Well, it was actually pretty easy to do. So I was the NDP caucus director of research. So I was I was directing the research team for all of the, the members of the legislature. So after the 98 election, there were 19 members. But then in the ni- 1999 election, they got knocked down substantially back to 11 I survived the staff cutback. So I was continuing on as director of research, and then one of the members died. Uh, Eileen O'Connell died in September 2000. So there was an opening. 
the single biggest thing that keeps people from running for public office is interference with their career. But since I was already working for the NDP caucus, that wasn't a consideration because win or lose, the job would still be waiting for me when I was done. So it was the right time in my life in terms of my age. It wasn't going to interfere at all with my employment. There was a vacancy in a highly winnable riding. And so it just, if there was ever a time for me to get into politics, it just, everything came together at the right time. You know, unfortunately, you know, it was because of somebody's death, but, you know, that aside, it was the perfect opportunity for somebody like me who was interested in politics to actually stand for office. Maybe if I was even back up a, a step further, what was it that made you choose the NDP to be the party you worked for and then ran for? When I was uh, growing up in Manitoba, I was interested in politics, but didn't really have much of a sense of ideology. And, and I ended up joining the Liberal Party for not very you know deep reasons. My, my local member of parliament was Liberal, Lloyd Axworthy, and I knew his constituency assistant who invited me along to a meeting one day. And the Liberal Party just seemed... You know, they were the they were the federal government. They were very, very weak provincially, but they were the federal government, so, you know, there was a lot of big names. So I ended up joining the Liberal Party. In fact, in the summer of 1984, I worked for Lloyd Actworthy in Ottawa, and that was, that was a very busy summer because there was a federal election coming. There was a federal uh, liberal leadership. I attended that convention. But then I went away to university. I went to study at Oxford for a couple of years, and so left all my ties behind and I, I was studying a lot of political philosophy at Oxford and when I came back I was much more left than I was when I when I when I went over there it's just the stuff I'd been reading and just thinking things through and so I was leaning that way anyway and then when I came to Nova Scotia I didn't expect to stay past the three years of law school and so I didn't pay very much attention to Nova Scotia politics. I read the newspapers, but just in a very, very superficial way was I aware of Nova Scotia politics. But what I did read, I just it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. The only party that was talking about anything that seemed to matter was the NDP. So I, I married one of my classmates, and so you know, towards the end of my time in law school, I realized I was going to stay here. So then I got more interested, more actively involved. And it, the logical choice was the NDP. I mean, at the time, the NDP provincially was very weak. They'd only had a couple of members, two or three members. Uh, but just ideologically, it was the right fit for me. And like I said, it was the only party that seemed to be talking about anything that mattered. The, the rest of it all was, this was like the, the end of the Buchanan era. Sort of they were mired in scandal. The liberals didn't say anything that caught my attention, but the party that consistently was talking about stuff that mattered was the NDP. So I went away again for another year in Ottawa, and when we came back, my wife and I lived in, happened to live in Halifax Atlantic. And just a week or two before we moved into the constituency, um, there was a by-election. Uh, Robert Chisholm was elected for the NDP, and I got a notice in the mail, in you know, in saying, "Here's my office. You know, come up to a meeting." And it was just the right time where I'd moved back to Nova Scotia with my wife from Ottawa. I was ready to join the NDP, got a notice in the mailbox, just a random notice in the mailbox. And I went to the meeting and joined the party, and that was that. And was it, when you did run, was it kind of your own uh, decision to run? Like, there's an opening, 
It's like, I should be the candidate or were you recruited? Oh, very much my own decision. Nobody was encouraging me to run. In fact, I was actively discouraged from running by the the senior staff members in the NDP caucus office. They were death, deathly afraid of being accused of favoritism. And so they bent over backwards to make things as difficult as possible for me to run. Inside the party, I don't know if it's like this in other parties, but inside the NDP, they just... They just are so afraid of being accused of favoritism. So they, for, for good reasons, they said all the staff needed to be neutral. So I couldn't get any help from any you know, of my colleagues. When I told them that I was thinking about running, they were the opposite of excited. I remember, I still remember telling them, and it was like a silence fell on the room. And no, there, no, I wasn't recruited. But I, so I just said, this is the right time. It's the right opportunity. I'm going to do it. I had heard who the other prospective candidates for the nomination were. And to be perfectly honest, I looked at the other potential candidates. I said, if they can do it, I can do it. I can do it better. But no, I didn't get any help or encouragement from the caucus office. So you mentioned that you joined the NDP because they were speaking about issues that mattered to you. Can you kind of elaborate on what sort of issues they were that spoke to you? I can't even remember now. I just the the person Alexa McDonough was in the legislature then, and she and John Holm were just people who seemed to be. They were the ones who seemed to really be after John Buchanan. They were talking about issues of like poverty and equality and housing and those kind of things. And at, at that point in my life, that those seemed to be important public policy issues. It's now almost 25 years ago and I have a hard time putting my finger on any one thing yeah just I, I can't say well it was this at this particular moment it just it's it just seemed obvious to me that my political home was the NDP when I moved to Nova Scotia politics seemed a lot more tribal you know when in Manitoba it was different in Manitoba everybody's roots are shallower you know there's Everybody's either immigrants or the children of immigrants or at most the grandchildren of immigrants. You know, it's a much younger part of the country, you know, leaving First Nations aside, of course. And so nobody could lord it over other people and say, well, my family's been here for 200 years. Or And then you move to Nova Scotia and suddenly there's, it seems a lot more insular, a lot more incestuous. You know, people have lived in the same place for 200 plus years and don't mind reminding everybody else of that fact. And the parties, uh, the, the liberals and conservatives, to me, it didn't seem to be based on anything other than who you knew or where you were from or what family you were born into. It didn't have a single thing to do with anything like ideas. And the only party that was talking about ideas at all, any ideas of any kind, was the NDP. When it came time to join a party, it just seemed obvious to me that it, that it had to be the NDP. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that sort of first chunk of time being in MLA and what that experience was like and kind of the, the challenges or the surprises that caught you when you first began doing the job. Yeah. Now, when I was first elected as an MLA, it was March 2001, and I'd been working for the NDP caucus as the director of research since July 1998. So I had not quite three years in. So the one thing that was familiar to me was when I became an MLA was the legislature itself. Now, I know just from talking to people over the years that the legislature is, for most people, is a complete mystery. 
it's not like any other thing they've done in their lives before. It has its unique rules. It's got unique, you know, the the just the way it works. And it, it often takes people years to figure out how the legislature works or why it works the way it does. But I already had that as a staff person. Now I had to learn that as a staff person, but you know, it's not hard to pick it up when you watch it every day. So I had the luxury when I became an MLA of feeling like I completely understood the legislature already. The hard part of becoming an MLA is the bit that you don't see as a staff person, which is all the constituency work. Now, there is something in common between being a lawyer and being an MLA. Like MLAs these days, they spend so much of their time being like an ombudsman or an advocate or or I think it, there's a lot in common between being an MLA and having what I would call a poverty law practice where people who don't have anywhere else to turn they go to their MLA looking for help and when when you're a lawyer you're used to well somebody comes to you with a problem you open a file you figure out how to help them, and then you help them, and then when the problem is resolved, then you close the file. So that that basic thought process or, and the way of managing issues was familiar to me already as a lawyer. So I felt like I got how to do the casework, but it's just dealing with a tremendous variety of people and problems that they come to you with, things that People come to you with things that you've never heard of before, and they want your help, and they expect, well, you're the MLA, so you're supposed to be an expert on this. You're supposed to snap your fingers and tell them how to solve their problem, but it might be something like, I don't know, nursing home wait lists or some problem to do with social assistance that you've never dealt with before. I'd worked for the Workers' Compensation Board, so it was actually a relief when somebody would come to me with a workers' compensation problem, because I knew exactly what to do about that. I knew the people, I knew the process, I knew the rules, but then people would come to you with other stuff, and it's like, I don't know. And people come to you with all kinds of things, because they they don't know who's responsible for what, and they're looking for help from anybody, and sometimes you say, well, that's really your municipal councillor, and sometimes you say, well, that's really your member of parliament. But it's just that that was the hardest thing dating used to. I had background as a researcher. I had background as a lawyer. But there's still nothing that quite prepares you for the endless amount and variety of casework. In your book, you mentioned that a lot of MLAs don't actually review the legislation that's kind of put forward to them. Mm. Kind of, I guess, slightly neglect that kind of part (laughs) of being an MLA. Yeah, more than slightly. Do you think the, I guess, large percentage of time that they spend on casework, does that contribute to that problem or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, why do MLAs spend their time on casework so much? Because when you're not a cabinet minister, that is basically what you're doing all day, every day, when you're not out on the social circuit. They do it because there's nobody else to do it. There is nobody else to do that kind of advocacy work, that kind of ombudsman role. There's nobody else, so so MLAs do it because if they don't do it, nobody else will. They do it because they like it, because down at the legislature, it's so hard to see sometimes what difference you're making. Like, you're just another bum in a chair down at the legislature. You vote the way you're supposed to vote, you go home. It's really hard to change things and policies and programs are a lot more complicated than you expected. There's things that might have been important to you when you get into politics and people tell you, say to you, no, we're not doing that. That's a dumb idea. Forget it. Just drop it. You know? and, and so at the legislature, it's hard sometimes to put your finger on what, what difference you're making. What are you doing 
that couldn't be done by somebody else sitting in the same chair. But back at the constituency office, when you fix somebody's problem, it makes you feel good. You've helped somebody. You've done a good thing. And that, that becomes kind of addictive after a while, where that becomes the meaning that MLAs find in their jobs. Down at the legislature, you realize pretty fast that things go exactly the same whether you read the bills or not, right? You're still going to vote the same way because that's the way your party's going to vote. It's somebody else's responsibility to look after the content. On the government side, it's the minister's responsibility. On the opposition side, it's the leader and the critic's responsibility. So if you're the critic, you're you're going to read the bill, or at least you're going to get a staff person to read the bill for you. But otherwise, why would you? Like every minute you spend reading legislation is time you're taking away from things that are more meaningful and more satisfying to you. Because there's no votes in becoming a legislative expert. There are votes in being back in the constituency, doing the casework and the um, and the social circuit. That's where the votes are. So that's where MLAs, that's where they end up spending their time. Because they take to heart, very much to heart, this idea that their main job is to get reelected. And so they're, they're just being smart users of their time. What is the best return on the investment of their time? It's casework, the social circuit. The less time they spend at Province House, the better. It's just it's just a smart, efficient use of time when you consider re-election to be your primary objective. What would you say the impact of that mindset is on public issues in Nova Scotia and the way, I guess, the issues that MLAs are tasked to deal with ultimately end up, end up getting handled and impacted? You know, what it means is the public part of debate on issues is very superficial. Very, very superficial. I mean, governing goes on in Nova Scotia. Government has to be run. And now that I've been on all sides of, of government, you know, opposition side, the government side, I've been a backbencher on the government side, I've been a, a cabinet minister. I can tell you, there's governing is going on, but it's going on in rooms around the legislature. And what happens is the debate happens and the discussions are held, but they're not as deep or as wide-ranging as they probably should be because it's all happening in secret. You know, what actually happens in public ends up being a very sort of formal statement of views with no acknowledgement that anybody on the other side might have any good ideas or no acknowledgement of doubts or, you know, you're unsure whether you're doing it or maybe we could do it this way, maybe we could do it that way. It's all very formalized and stultified. And that tracks, I think, from good public policy because it it means that policy is not getting the real vigorous debate that it needs. If a minister would stand up just once and say, we got this issue, there's a number of different ways to tackle it. We're not sure which one is the best, but all things considered you know, we're going to try it this way. You know, what do you think over there? Do you understand why we're doing it this way? Or do you think that maybe if we did it this other way, it might be better? We're just not really sure. I mean, that would be like a miracle. But that's that's the way we all, you know, we go about our daily lives, you know, with our families, our friends and stuff like that. We, you know, we're we're unsure of ourselves. We're doubting, you know, we'll try one thing. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. But then it, that doesn't happen in politics. So you've been a minister, why, why doesn't that happen? Because the political culture tells you that you're going to lose popularity if you admit doubt or uncertainty or error. That 
you believe that you will get jumped on publicly and metaphorically assaulted and you'll get a reputation as a screw-up if you admit that you made a mistake and so there's a belief that you have to at all costs never admit doubt or uncertainty or error and you know to a certain extent it's true i mean any time a minister admits they made a mistake or that they wasted money take something like the blue nose two for example which we know now was not handled you know as well as it could have been it wasn't a complete disaster i mean it's the original budget was something like 15 million dollars and now it's like 20 or a little bit over 20 million it took longer to do than it should but you know, I was part of the discussions around that, and I, I know how unsure we were and how uncertain, but for some of these projects, when they're go, totally going off the rails, every once in a while you just have to say, okay, it's not working. Let's just stop. Let's not throw good money after bad. But that doesn't happen in government because you can't admit that you made a mistake, so you charge on. It may be obvious to people after it's all over that it was the whole thing was a big mistake, but you charge on and and then you charge on and try and convince people that you're doing the right thing. It all has to do with public image and what people think of you and it all goes back to will they vote for you the next time and if you have an image of somebody who makes mistakes, then people aren't going to vote for you and so somebody comes in who pretends that they have all the answers, and of course they don't. But they pretend they do, and they, they claim they do, and they give the illusion of knowing the answers. So they get elected, and of course they screw up like everybody else does. And then somebody else comes along, and it's just this giant circle, which would end if we could just, if we could just have people admit that they're not sure, they're doing their best, and yeah, mistakes will be made. But that's not the culture. So how would uh, decisions made at the Premier's office or through Cabinet be, I guess, broached to the backbenchers? To the backbenchers? Oh, well, hardly at all. Because then you get into the other, the other meeting, which is the caucus meeting. Theoretically, that would be the place where you, the, the, the backbenchers would have a chance to speak directly to ministers and to the Premier and where the premier and the ministers would have a chance to present directly to the backbenchers, but it it was always messy. You know, for example, as a cabinet minister, I might have been working on something for months, and it might be really delicate, the balancing of interests. There might be all kinds of nuanced policy considerations, and I would have been working on it for months. I would, and, and then you take it, a presentation to, to caucus, talking to people who may be hearing about the issue for the very first time. And so their responses typically are not very nuanced, you know, pretty high level, not very sophisticated. And as a minister, you just, you want to do a face palm and say, come on, you guys, I know what I'm doing. You got to trust me on this. But that doesn't always work very well because sometimes the, the caucus members, they hear it and they say, my constituents are never going to buy that. Or like, no, no, you're going in totally the wrong direction. But it's really hard to do that. A caucus is a very unwieldy, a very unwieldy thing. A government caucus, it just, as a body, as a deliberative body, it's just very unwieldy. And why is that, do you think? Yeah, it's just different levels of knowledge of interest. One of the things that I noticed over the years, and this goes right back to my days in opposition, is that no matter what the topic was on the table, it would be of interest only to a handful of people around the table. So what would typically happen in caucus meetings 
is the three or four people who are really into that topic would be engaged and everybody else would be talking on their phones, just disinterested. And, and so it was really hard to engage a body that large. Like when you're in the government, by definition, you've got at least 27 members in your caucus. We had a little bit more. The McNeil government has a little bit more. Sometimes in a minority, you have a little bit less. But that's a lot of people to try and knit together into a deliberative body. Just like you know how unwieldy it would be to have a, a board of directors for Springtide of 34 members. You know, a caucus of 34 is not, doesn't work very well. And, you know, you get ministers coming in who think they know everything about a topic and somebody says something. And then, of course, you get interpersonal dynamic, you get, get people who just talk, talk, talk at every meeting no matter what. And you, you start tuning them out and people who have hobby horses that they just won't let go no matter what you say or do and it just it just as a as a body for coming to a sensible landing on public policy decisions it just doesn't work I, I, and and look i was part of a caucus as a staffer and then a member for 15 years and we never figured it out how to make caucus work never figured it out and so is that i guess a perspective you came to after you'd been a minister or is that something yeah it, 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 this problem of the unwieldiness of caucus or the dysfunctionality of caucus as a as a forum for making any kind of decisions was apparent to me early on, right back from the time that I started as director of research in 1998. And that idea never never left me. And I just saw it from different perspectives, first as a staffer, then as a member, then as a cabinet minister, then as a government backbencher. So I, I've seen it, and all, all that did was confirm for me that no matter what angle you were coming at it from caucus caucus just didn't work it just didn't work and so what it ended up being was more a, a place for the premier or the ministers to communicate their decisions to give a, essentially a heads up to people about what had been decided somewhere else and if it was something that the backbenchers just couldn't live with occasionally the pushback would be enough to change the decision but not not very often so so there was dissatisfaction all around it just it just it just doesn't work now I, i've read other things in brent rathgaber's book recent book he talks about the dysfunctionality of the federal conservative caucus so when i read stuff like that it just confirms for me mm-hmm. my own experience i don't think my experience was unique although obviously i was only ever a member of one caucus but he talks about the fact that that the federal conservative caucus essentially it turned into a pep rally where the it, that was where the prime minister said, "Well, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to say." At the federal level, it's far too large to be any kind of a sensible, deliberative body. But did that not make you feel frustrated when you were a backbencher? No, when I was a backbencher, I was I was tuned out. I was on my way out. You have to remember the the dynamics. So I'd been a cabinet minister for three years. I resigned as a cabinet minister. And at that point, I knew I wasn't going to run again. I had essentially mentally checked out. I couldn't care less what happened in caucus. For me at that point, my political career was over. And I was just, I was just trying to keep the constituency work going until, until the election came. So I wasn't frustrated by what happened in caucus because... Mostly, I didn't care. And then, weirdly, I ended up, after a year, going back into cabinet and then was in cabinet until the change of government. But, yeah, during that year when I was a backbencher, I think it's fair to say I was disengaged. 
I can empathize with the position of you know, showing up to a caucus meeting and you've got sort of that mix of a few people paying really close attention who care to a few people who are like just saying the same thing they always say and then people on their phone who, you know, tuning out. But Howard in his book raises kind of the idea that, you know, there was a decent sized group of people who had a specific direction and ideology they were trying to advance yeah. as, as MLAs. In your experience, either as minister or just caucus member, how did that tension show up in the work that the government did or in the way that mm. the government had to come to decisions on things? The way that it was most noticeable, this is actually a really interesting story or case study, and I'm not probably the best person to talk about it, but I'll just tell you what I observed. So there was a group in the NDP caucus who really felt that the top issue of the government ought to be uh, fighting poverty. That's why they were New Democrats. That's what they were there for. And they felt that the Dexter government wasn't sufficiently focused on that. The group was made up entirely of backbenchers. And so most of them were new. There were some who weren't new, like Howard, although Howard was sort of half in and half out of the group. The main players in it were um, Jim Morton and Gary Burrell, with some regular help from a few others. And what they did was they started meeting separately on that specific issue. See, uh, uh, and that's probably a good thing, but because when you're focused on one issue, as opposed to the vast variety of issues that a caucus could deal with, when you're focused on one issue, you know, it's good. So ha- this was informal. They set themselves up as a group, started meeting separately to talk about how they could advance the anti-poverty agenda. But they were so afraid of rocking the boat that they were at pains to reassure the the premier and the staff around the premier you know they weren't rebels they weren't they weren't out to to rock the boat they just thought there was this issue that needed more attention so to cut a long story short i think they were probably too gentle they were there we knew they were there i started going to their meetings after i resigned from cabinet because I, I kind of thought what they were talking about was important too but they had so bought into the political culture that you just don't you don't say anything publicly, you don't do anything publicly, you don't rock the boat, that, that I don't think they actually made any difference at all. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think they did. And I, I, I think probably if the members of that group look back on it, they wish dearly that they'd been more forceful than they were because they weren't very forceful. And so, so I don't think they had much of an impact. How would you describe, I guess, the tone of the legislature? It's awful, of course. It's it's completely dysfunctional. It's weird, because I spent a lot of time thinking about this, about why is the tone of the legislature so awful? Because you, if you haven't been there, if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't been on the floor, it, it's shocking. It's shocking, the behavior in there. Shocking. I mean, I still can't believe it. I was in there for 12 years, and I still can't believe the behavior that goes on in there. And it's like, so I, I spent time thinking, why? Why do otherwise normal grown-ups act that way? And, of course, part of the answer is, well, not all of them act that way. But the people who aren't inclined to act that way t- 
tend to sit silently. Now, it would make more of a difference if some of those people were to say to their colleagues, we will not behave like this. Like, if you start acting in this bananas way, I'm out of here. Uh, you know, I'll leave the legislature, I'll leave the caucus. But they don't do that. What they do, the well-behaved ones, is they sit silently. And that's another thing I've thought. I don't know the answer to that. Why? Why are they not more forceful about saying to their colleagues, we cannot act this way? Everybody on some level buys into the behavior. Even the ones who don't behave badly don't try to correct the bad behavior of others. And for the ones who do act badly, it's just, I don't know, it's just, I still don't understand it. I still don't understand the psychology or the sociology, the pack mentality that goes into the behavior that goes on in that legislature. Part of it has to do with the fact that so little that goes on in there matters. I mean, it's not real debate. So you're not acting like it's real debate. Why does that lead to bad behavior? I still don't know. I still don't understand it. It's awful. It's one of the reasons I had to get out of politics is because it just eats away at your soul. Just being part of that is corrosive. That's probably the best word. It's corrosive. It It's like acid eating away at your soul, being in that place where people are acting so stupidly and so meanly and aggressively towards each other. Did you ever try and go, I guess, like against that oppositional mentality and try and reach over to your colleagues across the floor, like when you were a cabinet minister? No, not very much. You know, when I think about this stuff, part of what I think about is, okay, why did I behave the way I behaved? I'm not saying I was an angel and all this. I, I, I didn't rise above it. At best, as time went on, I became one of those people who sat silently. But everybody remembered me from before, you know, because I heckled as much as anybody and I was as aggressive as anybody. But when you stop doing that, nobody really notices. They just remember, you know, you've got a reputation and people will always remember that. But, you know, when I was a backbencher, I would just sit mostly silently, didn't heckle, well, unless some, somebody said something really stupid. We run into people in the work we do a fair amount of time who will say, you know, I want to make good change in public policy. I want to have an impact on, you know, blah, 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 or whatever it is, an issue that the provincial or the federal government deals with. But they say, I would never go into politics because that's just, I'm not the type of person that succeeds in that world for the reasons you illustrated. But let's say somebody were heading in that direction aware of all the challenges that you've illustrated, but still intent on saying, no, I want to make, you know, these policy changes. I want to see a future that's different than the present. And I'm choosing politics as the way to make that happen. I know constituency work isn't the way to get us there. I'll deal with it, whatever. How would you counsel somebody who is running to be an MLA or an MP in this system? What would your advice be for them if they were really trying to to make an impact? First thing I say is read my book. Uh, then I say read tragedy in the commons and then I, I, I would say to them you are not better and smarter than the people who are quoted in tragedy in the commons there's a lot of really smart really capable really committed people who were there before you and didn't accomplish anywhere close to what they imagined they would accomplish so don't think you're going to be any different so if you want to go into politics I would say to the person even knowing all of this, I say more power to you, but go in with your eyes wide open. I would never say to somebody, don't go into politics. I would say, if you're going to do it, 
go in with your eyes wide open about what the job entails. One of the fundamental issues we have is people go into politics for the vaguest reasons. They don't, and they have only the foggiest notion of what the actual job involves. And it doesn't help that there's no job description. So people imagine, I, I think, a fairly romantic idea of what it is that elected representative does. And then when, if they actually get into it, they get so consumed by you know, things like casework and they get so wrapped up in the political culture that it's not long before they've forgotten why or only have have a, a vague recollection of why they wanted to get into it in the first place. And one of the lessons I learned from Tragedy in the Commons, and I think this is absolutely right and really important, is that a lot of uh, experienced MPs looking back wished that they had focused on a particular subject matter and said, that's my thing. That's what I'm going to work on. Not something like really vague. I was talking to one of the candidates in the by-elections the other day who said, you know, he wants to do more to help small business. And I said, that's so vague as to be meaningless. Like something really specific. I am going to get this done. And then you work on that. You devote all of your legislative efforts to that. Because after all, in the House of Commons, you're only one voice among, you know, what's soon to be 343 people ants in an anthill scurrying all in different directions. So it, you got to be focused from day one on what you want to accomplish and then work on it, work on it, work on it. And if you leave politics having accomplished that thing, that's a good thing and you'll have accomplished more than most members. What most members do is they go in with a very vague idea. They get caught up in a hundred or thousand different issues that are going on in the constituency or whatever, and they end up accomplishing almost nothing that matters. And so, so... You can't point your finger to any one thing and say, well, that would never have happened if that member hadn't been there. So as long as they're focused and go in with a realistic idea of what the job involves, I say, sure, go ahead. So why did you decide to run provincially? Why not municipally or at the federal level? Hmm. It's funny. Nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> why? Why? I wasn't that interested in city issues. I never considered running for city council. Never. Although nowadays I actually believe that that's where most of the action is. That's where a lot of the really interesting policy work is happening. And so I actually believe that if you want to make a real difference, uh, one really good way to do that is to be a, you know, a, a good contributing member of a city council or to be a big city mayor. You can get a lot done. Like the party system provincially and federally just so gets in the way of getting anything meaningful done. And there are some big cities, of course, that have party politics, but Halifax isn't one of them. So if I had to do it all over again, I think I would much more seriously consider running for municipal office. Although, man, they get snowed under with casework. And all the calls come to their house. I couldn't stand that. Why did I go provincially? I don't know. I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure that I... First of all, I was looking for work, and the jobs that were available were provincial at the time. And then when Eileen O'Connell died, the opening was at the provincial level. It just seemed a lot more doable. At the time, remember, the NDP had never elected an MP federally in the Halifax area. No, wait a minute, no. Let me get my chronology right here. Uh, no, actually, Alexa had won in 1997. Well, there was no opening. Okay, there was no opening for one thing federally. If there had been, I suppose I might have considered. But I wouldn't, nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew who the hell I was, right? I had only arrived in Nova Scotia for the first time in 1986. I only finally decided to settle here in 1991. 
if you're going to run for parliament, you got you just gotta have more of a name, more of a network. It's harder to run federally if nobody knows who you are. But then Megan Leslie shows you can move here and become the member of parliament. But there were no openings federally. Even if there were, there was no reason, particular reason to think that I could win. And at least I knew that if I was going to run for office, the smarter thing was to run in a riding that you could actually win. Not run for the sake of running, but running in order to win. Just all these things came together and it just made sense to me. The job was available provincially, so I worked provincially. The opening was provincial, so I ran provincially. Oh, and sorry, one last thing. And the other thing is I was aware of the fact that being a member of parliament is really, really hard on the family. is Because you're, you're away for six months and our first child was born in 1998 and the second one was born in 2002. And the last thing I wanted to do with young kids was, you know, half spend half the year in another city. So... By running here in Halifax, it meant I could be home every single night. And that, at that point in my life, that was important to me. Would you ever consider running municipally in the future? I don't think so. I, I'm pretty much done with politics. Or I should say I'm pretty much done with elected office. Well, I, I like what I'm doing now with CBC, doing political commentary. I mean, it's not a job. It's just sort of freelance very, very part-time, but I enjoy it, and it just means that I can watch people and observe and comment on it. And I could imagine myself doing some kind of advisory role. I don't know if I'd do it full-time, but the idea of running for office and actually being an elected representative again and, and, and diving back into the casework and stuff like that, I can't imagine doing that again at any level. And I think I know too much about about how bad things are in Ottawa that I, I can't. I just can't imagine being just another MP. Because the problems that I've talked about here in Nova Scotia are just magnified at the federal level. Well, like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Knowing what I know, why would I do that? If I were starting out, I probably would consider it. But at this point in my life, I'd say no. No, not, not running for elected office again. One of the things I'm curious about is, so you've shared a lot more than most people have shared on how politics works in Nova Scotia. Aside from you know what we've probably all seen in terms of pu- the public reaction to the book reviews, people's comments on Facebook and Twitter, I'm curious what has been the response from people for whom that book revealed secrets and information that perhaps they wouldn't have rather seen get out. What's the, has there been any sort of because uh, it's pushing up against the culture you're talking about, which is yeah. by secrecy. Yeah, yeah, you have to keep in mind that a lot of people inside the Dexter government were disappointed with the Dexter government. And a lot of people on the inside, you know, like in the caucus, the cabinet, the staff, scratch their head and say, how did we go so far off the rails? Because we weren't a terrible government. We were actually a pretty decent government. But most governments are decent governments. I mean, you can't be in charge of $10 billion a year and screw up absolutely everything. Of course, all governments do a lot of things right because they've got a you know a professional experience civil service around them and a, a lot of stuff just ticks over right so you know we did a lot of good things but obviously we lost the confidence of the voters because there, we got about 45% of the vote in 2009 and something like 25% in 2013 so we lost 20% of the electorate just said no we we don't have confidence in these guys anymore so something went badly wrong and all of us i think who were involved in it had a lot of thinking to do about how we could work so hard to become the government and then lose it after only one term. And so the reaction of a lot of the insiders has been that 
they thought the book was welcome. It was it was a version, obviously my version, uh, therefore an incomplete version of what happened. They have their own stories and experiences and their own thoughts, but almost universally they thought it was valuable. There's only one person that I can think of who was just sort of dead set against it and had just decided that I am the worst thing in the world. And that's somebody who wasn't in the caucus, but had a senior position in the party who just thinks, well, just believes that I have betrayed the cause by acknowledging that we were less than perfect. But I would say that's that's just because that person is totally bought into the culture where you can never admit that your party makes mistakes. And so if you write a book that it acknowledges mistakes, therefore you've betrayed the cause. But that's one person that I can think of. And other than that, other than that, the reaction, even from the former insiders, has been pretty positive. Do you have a proudest moment from when, from the time you served? Well, I mean, when I look back on the things that I accomplished, I was talking to somebody about this today, is probably the single best thing I did is something that almost nobody understands. And that is the reform of the public service pension plan, which was in really bad shape when we came to office, had been in bad shape for a long time. I knew as the opposition finance critic that it was in bad shape. I knew that somebody had to do something about it. So when I became the finance minister, that was one of my projects. And we did end up reforming it. We reformed it in a very meaningful way. It's a lot healthier today than it was when we came into office. But pension plans, by their nature, are complicated and controversial. So I haven't spoken a lot about it. When I was writing my book, I started writing a chapter on pensions because it's probably the thing that I'm proudest of. And then I realized that only six people cared in the province, and they already knew what we'd done. And the rest of the people would just yawn because it's complicated. And the other thing about it is that not everybody got what they wanted. And by writing about it, I was just going to piss them off all over again. So it was just better not to talk about it. So that's actually the thing that I'm proudest of that I think because I believe that the reforms will last for a long time. They will benefit tens of thousands of Nova Scotians and their families far into the future. And, you know, I could have just sat in my hands and done nothing and let a sick pension plan get a little bit sicker. Because the thing about pensions is all long term. It's not like it was going to, the bottom was going to fall out while I was the minister. But it would just get a little bit worse because the pension plan was just on a, it was in bad shape and it was on a decline. And I could have let it decline just a little further. But I didn't. Um, We reformed it. We did the right thing. It's going to make a lot of people better off. So I'm proud of that, and but I never talk about it. Is there anything you wanted to add that uh, we didn't get a chance to cover or didn't come up in any of the questions? Um, no, I thought you were going to ask me why I got into politics. But you didn't really. Did I ask you that? Not, you not that? directly. Sort of. But no, you don't have to ask me that. Is oh. it? But, but please give us the <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I always laugh at that question because every politician, and they say this in tragedy in the comments, every politician gives a variation on the answer, I wanted to make a difference, and most of which is baloney. Um, it, it, but that's the acceptable answer. Um, I, I got into politics because I thought it would be fun and interesting. You know, if mm-hmm. I was always into public policy, always into the public interest. When I was... When I was doing law, 
I was always interested in the public interest angle of law. So if you're interested in the, if you're interested in the public interest, why wouldn't you want to go into politics? Because that's where decisions are being made in the public interest. So it just seemed like a really interesting, exciting place to be. But that's not, you're not supposed to say stuff like that. You're supposed to say, I wanted to make a difference. And I don't know. I, there's a lot of things that politicians say that just aren't true. It's just, it's part of the culture. It's, and one, one of the things about being an ex-politician now, especially somebody who has no intention of going back into elected office, is now I feel like I can just say, this is what it is. You know, whether that's what I'm supposed to say or not, this is the way it, it works. And I really enjoy the company of the um, the other members of the ex-MLA's organization. You know, it's just come together in the last year or two. Because all of these people are really good, well-meaning people, who've and they've dropped their partisanship, which all of them would have exercised in one way or another when they were in politics. And now they can just be thoughtful. And, well, you're, you're probably seeing a lot of that in your exit interviews. They don't have to put on a facade anymore. Uh, but the people who are in politics, I mean, just anybody who's in politics, you just have to take what they say with a grain of salt, because they can't they they can't let the facade drop. They all have to pretend things that may or may not be true. This is the thing with politicians: is what they're saying may be true, but you have no way of knowing whether it's true or not. And anyway, so I'm not going to say I got into politics because I wanted to make a difference. I'm going to say because it, it looked really fun and interesting. That was former NDP finance minister and Halifax Atlantic MLA, Graham Steele. Graham wrote a book on his experience in politics titled, What I Learned About Politics. Graham now teaches at the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University and will be releasing his second book titled, The Effective Citizen, in the fall of 2017. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript Podcast. We encourage you, as always, to consider becoming a supporter of the podcast. You can do that at offscript.ca and click on the donate button. We're also encouraging you to go to Apple Podcasts and review this podcast there so that more people who have interests similar to yours can find it. If you're not sure how to do that, stick around after the music fades out and we'll tell you how. It's uh, a couple of steps, so we're just going to talk you through it. Step one, go to Google and search for on the record off script in Apple Podcasts. It should be the first link that comes up, and you can click on that. That'll take you to the On The Record Offscript page by Springtide on Apple Podcasts. Click on View in iTunes, and then click to rate if you just want to give it a star rating. And if you want to give us a real hand, click Write a Review. That'll pull up the podcast in your iTunes app right under the name of the podcast. Tell us what you like about it, what you'd like us to do more of, and of course we read them all and it means a lot to us. And the main reason we ask you to do that is because it helps other people find the podcast.